You know, I say semi-frequently, this is a weird one to talk about, but this is a weird one to talk about. I, I don't even know where to start with this. This was originally a story about Romulans who were staging a time travel thing, which was then merged with the Times Orphan plot from Deep Space Nine. You remember that episode? Um, oh gosh, what's her cut? And Molly falls into a time portal, and then she comes out like 20 years later, and she's turned feral. You know, I, I've actually already covered that episode by this point over Deep Space Nine, and I guess obviously we're at the end right now. Right now we're covering the the very end. Actually, I'm not sure when this episode will go live relative to Deep Space Nine. I'm sorry, I'm getting off topic. The point is, those two stories didn't really work out at all, and they ended up shelving that. Meanwhile, Michael Piller was really pushing for doing something with Alexander right at the finish line. I know I've already commented on this, because we've actually already seen the end of Alexander, which is over on Deep Space Nine. He... he He's uh, right up there in Season 7, actually, of D-Space 9. And then he's just kind of gone. But the, the problem here is he's... Like, they never really know what the hell they want to do with him. So they just kind of keep hitting the exact same note over and over and over again. They just keep... Like, like picture them on the keyboard, and rather than playing a song, they're just playing... And, and nothing else, Right? It's a little frustrating, and it's aggravating, because it worked once, and now do something else. You'd think this would be them being like, okay, we'll finally accept him doing something else. Nope, because D-Space-9 kind of ruined that, so thank, thanks for that. <clears throat> Whatever. This is just, What's even weirder is originally Keeler was going to be in this episode. Yes, really. That was actually how it was originally scripted. Um, probably some time travel shenanigans. They never actually explained because they couldn't get a hold of Susie uh, Plexen, the woman who plays Keeler. So they just decided to torpedo that. But that was actually the original intent, which I find rather amusing. So, uh, yay. <sighs> so here we are, Alexander episode, woo. Um... Uh, the problem with this episode, in my opinion, I just want to front load this, is so much of it is all over the place. Even the presence of one of my favorite Star Trek guest stars, James Sloyan, doesn't really help salvage this one. He does a good job. In fact, he actually added manages to add several nice little bits of foreshadowing to the episode. Um, but he still doesn't quite work for me, and that's sad. <sighs> So, <clears throat> they have some downtime. This actually amuses me. I, I like to think that they're like, well, we're waiting here for a ship that's going to rendezvous with us in a bit. Uh, we can make it back in time to the rendezvous, and we, can have, we have days to do whatever the hell we want to. Okay, cool. You know, we could just warp to where the ship is. Like, we can reach them if we want to get ahead. No, 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 it's okay, it's okay. Uh, they'll, they'll be here in three days. Everyone take five. Like, <laughs> I don't mean to sound callous or cruel or like it's a bad thing it's just it amuses me that they're like well we could get some more work done or we could chill for a few days and they decide to chill for a few days what i'm also amused by is what they decide to chill with but that's neither here nor there now what i really like there's a lot of individual moments that are really good in this episode what i really like is when Worf opens up to picard about his issues with alexander of all the people on this crew in my opinion, I know they kind of pushed the whole Troy motherly angle thing, but in my opinion, Picard is the one he would respect the most to come to with issues about his personal life. You know, Because 
Of course he freaking would. Picard has been there for Worf multiple times with regards to Klingon-type situations and is probably one of the most understanding and respectful per people when it comes to Klingon culture and, and the way that works and blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, of course he goes to Picard. And, funnily enough, Picard has a legitimately good idea. There's a Klingon uh, festival happening soon. There's a Klingon colony nearby. Let's make it happen. I like that. It's a good scene. It's a good scene. They even decide, oh my god, they even decide to just take the frickin' ship rather than a shuttlecraft. Because a ship can go ludicrously faster than a shuttle. I know I've complained about this a lot, but it's really silly when they take a shuttle that's going at impulse or warp 2. And they could have just gotten there in literally seconds. So that's the problem when you have a, a, a curve of warp scale that's like this. I believe this is logarithmic. Uh, logarithmic curve. I, I might be using the wrong word. Because warp 2 is down here and warp 8 is up here. <laughs> you know? The, d the degree of difference between these two is a matter of... Hu it, it, it's, I don't even have words for it. It's a difference between taking a couple days or a few seconds. It will literally take you longer to get down to the transporter room than the ship to get to its destination. <clears throat> so, good on them for recognizing that. So they go to the festival. Woo! And... It's all right, you know. It's it's not great for a Klingon festival. I'm weirded out that they're doing the fake thing where the swords don't actually connect. <sighs> you know, I get that it's a play, but these are freaking Klingons. I would imagine they would actually attack each other. I don't know. Just food for thought. Not nothing that really bothers me. Overall, it's decent. I do, of course, like the fact that Worf knows right off the top of his head, knows the opera, knows how to follow through with it. And I actually kind of like the idea that Alexander got to get a hit in. You know, Alexander, oh, you wounded me, you know. I mention that because I like to think that he would do that for kids in general, right? I mean, just to name a really low-tier realistic perspective of that, uh, I have <clears throat> lost an arm wrestling contest to my niece before. If you don't understand the significance of this, I could lift my niece's entire body with just one arm. I should know. I've done this. Because, you know, I used to, used to carry her like this. So, yeah, no, it, it's just, oh, no, she's too strong for me. Ah, it's just that kind of a thing. It, it totally fits, and I like it. Anyways, so then there's a scene where Worf is clearly getting really into it. And Alexander's just kind of like, eh. how many of you have something that interests you? The mere fact that you've watched this far into this episode probably means you're interested in Star Trek. Call me a weirdo. How many of you have really wanted to share something you're interested in with someone else? To enthuse, right? To share that mutual enjoyment. There's just something wonderful about that, isn't it? It's, it's, it's hard to describe, really. It's one of the reasons I say so many times. I used to just say geeks are social creatures, but nowadays I have to adjust that to people. But seriously, though, geeks are social creatures. We want to share what we like with others. We want to have that mutual enthusiasm. We want to see different perspectives on things and maybe appreciate things in ways we didn't before, right? So, Worf is really getting into this, and it's clearly something that he's really passionate about. He's like, yes, oh, and he's trying to share it with Alexander, who's just kind of like, eh, eh. and how many of you have been there, where you've tried to share something you love with someone who's just not really into it? 
And, and they'll, they'll go along with it. You know, they're your friend or they're your family or your loved one or whatever. And they'll be like, yeah, okay, sure, okay. But they're not actually into it. For me, it's speedrunning. I love speedrunning. I've been speedrunning since I was in school. Since Mega Man 5 came out, I could actually give you the time, whenever that year is, I don't know. And uh, I love it. I, it's, it. There's something just so wonderful, and I, 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 could, I could gush about it for, for hours and hours. Uh, I don't have any friends or family who are interested in speedrunning. None. I had to ax speedrunning from my show because my own viewers weren't interested in it. But that's part of the problem, isn't it? That's what Worf's going through is he has something that he obviously very much cares about, and he wants to share that enthusiasm, and, the, and Alexander's just like, eh, okay, you know. <laughs> right? Now, that's an interesting position to be in, and I, I just wanted to bring this whole topic up, because I found myself actually sympathizing with Morf, Worf more than I thought I would, considering he's a terrible father. And that's not even me saying that. Uh, in fact, I'm going to pull a quote here from Michael Dorn. <clears throat> we don't really know what happens, just like the future's uncertain. It's just like real life. But Worf is still a terrible father. He hasn't got a clue. No offense to Worf, really, but he is a terrible father. <laughs> a trend that is going to continue into Deep Space Nine, but let's not get into that right now. <clears throat> so then Alexander shows real interest, and Worf just completely shuts him down because it's time to go home. What? To continue my parallel earlier, that'd be like if I shared speedrunning with, I don't know, one uh, who watches this? Uh, Lore Reloaded. I'm like, hey, Lore Reloaded, check out speedrunning. And Lore Reloaded's like, nah. And I'm like, okay, whatever. And then later, Lore Reloaded comes back and he's like, oh my god, speedrunning's so amazing. I'm like, yeah, whatever. Like, no, dude, you, you, you did it. Connect. But no, Worf's a terrible father. <clears throat> so then the fake assassination attack happens and that's just kind of, okay. <laughs> Um, they, he stabbed, there's so many things wrong with this plan. I'll get, I'll talk more about that in a minute, but Kimtar, uh, you know, talks up Klingon, talks up Kronos. Actually, first we have the first bit of foreshadowing. He is rude to Riker. I stress the way I say that. Worf himself even calls him on it. He's not Klingon to Riker. He's rude to Riker. A Klingon is not rude, a Klingon is blunt. There is a difference. And I point that out because it shows how Kimtar, excuse me, I should be saying Kimtar, doesn't actually know how to act like a Klingon. Which makes sense. He is a very diplomatic person who is a peacemaker, right? So, logic. So then Kimtar talks, uh, talks to himself, to Alexander, and he says, you know, Klingons, Klingons are amazing. Kronos is amazing. And he hits the core point pretty much immediately. I actually wrote down the whole sentence just to make it clear. If anyone tries to hurt your father again, you will be able to fight at his side and make sure nothing happens to him. As always, James Sloyan is, is amazing and absolutely manages to nail several of these lines. And you can tell the massive amount of sincerity in his tone as he's saying this. It really helps to emphasize where he's coming from on this one. So then Quark shows up. Like, hey, <laughs> keeping track of things. This is the first real flaw in Kimtar's plan. And this is also the second bit of foreshadowing. Because Riker successfully reaches out to Quark, who actually does have information on the Duras sisters. And Kimtar is just stalled for a second and says, I I'm admit, I'm surprised. I didn't think anyone could find them. <laughs> Whoops. 
Quark is amazing, as usual. I do find myself wondering, Quark has always been a little bit of an information broker, and this is kind of the last time I'll be talking about him on TNG. Obviously, he'll keep showing up until the final episode of DS9. In fact, I believe he has the final line of dialogue in Deep Space Nine, which is very apropos. But I find myself wondering if, at this point in history, towards the beginning of Deep Space Nine, if Quark just kind of regularly kept track of potential problems... And I know what you're thinking. Why? Well, two reasons. First of all, uh, knowing where a tornado is no, lets you know where not to be. And second of all, some people want to know where a tornado is, and they'll be willing to pay. And I find myself wondering what kind of a shadow broker Cork would be if he decided to go that direction instead. I mean, he's already kind of a people person. Anyways, <clears throat> so. Then we go to the bit where... Uh, Kimtar brings them down to the program. And what's really cool, I've actually talked before about how useful the holodeck would be for about 700,000 reasons, but training is one of them. Because they actually bother to freeze program, be like, all right, what can you tell by a stance? It can tell you what he's about to do. Now, this is absolutely true. And if you've ever done any kind of martial arts class or sword fighting class or anything like that, you'll be they'll teach you the same type of things. But with a holodeck, you can literally freeze the program and just give you a moment to process. The idea being that once you know what to look for, once you're more trained in it, once you're more practiced in it, you can start to recognize it like that, rather than needing a moment to sit and pause and be like, oh, right, it's there, you know, that kind of thing. Just cool little tidbit I wanted to comment on. Anywho, <clears throat> so then he refuses to kill, which is an interesting concept, because we could have a whole discussion about that. Uh, I myself have said many times that the cost of mercy is power, because what that means is in order to really give mercy to someone, you have to be willing to take the hit. If he turns around and decides to stab you to death, you need to be able to survive that stab to death. If, you are, if you're giving mercy from a position of weakness, then you are vulnerable. And that's exactly what happens to Alexander here and what he's trying to avoid in general. So, then we continue the little find... There's technically two plots this episode, but they really are. It is, in fact, the same plot. This is actually probably one of the better examples of an A-plot, B-plot, because the two plots are actually the same. It's just we don't realize it yet at first, even though we think they're connected at first. They're just not connected the way we thought they were. It's, it's actually pretty clever, and that's probably one of the better parts of the episode, in my opinion. So they go and they find, the, they find Gorta. And that's just, I, I, I was just grinning half the scene, because they find the guy and he's just like, ah, he was supposed to be a Ferengi, but they decided to use uh, a... I forget what the race is. Not a Euridian, that's later. But anyway, they decided to use some other random race. They're like, hi, how are things? Um, it's against my personal code to give things away. And, and then Jordy just comes down and very smoothly says, you know, it's probably not the best decision to try and push or whatever when you're alone and stranded without a ship or resource. And he's like, okay, point taken. <laughs> and then Data comes in, good cop, you know, we might be able to give you transit if you were to give us information. And the whole thing is just wonderful. It's a, it's a great sequence. I love it. Meanwhile, uh, we see our, I guess this is now our third bit of foreshadowing. Kimtar approaches Worf, and he does so very diplomatically. He does so with, with an olive branch. But when the negotiation begins, he starts to hardball. You get the impression, and I think a lot of this is on Sloyan's performance, that Alexander learned how to be a pretty good negotiator. 
pretty good diplomat overall. Because being a diplomat doesn't just mean being diplomatic. You do have to play hardball, something the Federation need to learn back in uh, Season 1. And so you could see all of that there. He starts off pretty smooth and thing, and then when he's pushed, he pushes back hard. He has something else up his sleeve, so to speak. I have the right to say you are not training your son well. I can actually legally go after this. Just interesting the way he pushes that angle. Then he starts talking to Alexander to teach him the tale of Kalash and his bro. He doesn't say it that way. The reason I bring that up is because this is probably one of the better highlights of the difference between a story and a tale I've ever seen in fiction. Now, I myself have discussed the differences many times, so forgive me for being brief here. I don't want to bore you too much. A story is something that you could think actually happening, like an episode of Star Trek. A tale is something that has a purpose, usually like an Aesop, or it's intended to get across an intent or something like that. It's not supposed to be taken literally and logically. You know, he didn't literally cry and make the entire lake be filled with his tears. Um, you know, you're not supposed to look at the prisoner's dilemma and think of a way logically out it because that defeats the point of the tale. I know the prisoner's dilemma is, isn't really a tale, but it's the same kind of concept. The tale is being told with a point, not to be taken literally. I bring this up, though, because what happens is uh, Kimtar is telling this tale, which is, which is trying to get across a parable, a point. And Alexander's just sitting there thinking through it logically. Well, hang on, that doesn't make sense. Why doesn't this just work this way? And why didn't he do this? And why didn't the... and he just starts dissecting it logically because he's expecting this to be a story. Now these are my own terminologies, but I, there people have discussed the differences between the stories and tales over the years, and far smarter and more intelligent and more logically reasoned people can tell you a whole lot more about that than I am. All I wanted to say is I thought it was an interesting discussion of the variance between the two because Alexander obviously leans more toward the story thing, which I sympathize with because I do too. I don't like tales in general. I look at that and I'm like, okay, well then why is this here? And why is this here? And why is this working? This is stupid. <laughs> this makes no sense. Like a bad episode of Star Trek. <clears throat> Anyways, I could have I could have gone a lot of directions with that. Is season one Enterprise? I don't know. Discovery? Moving on, moving on. So... <clears throat> So then, Kimtar really pushes that you should be with your own kind. And at first, I'm thinking, oh my god. And when I say at first, I mean when I first saw this episode. Because, as I've said before, Star Trek really likes to hammer that button for some reason. You should be with your own... Oh no, excuse me. You should be with your own kind. You should be with your own people. You should be with those you belong... And it's like, okay, um... No? <laughs> Isn't that like the opposite of what we're going for here? I don't know, I don't know. But... For once, this is actually being put a little bit on its head because this is Alexander insisting that this is what he should be in order to save his his father, effectively, not, you know, anything that they actually mean. So, this leads to one of the better scenes in the episode where Riker completely talks around the Iridian. says, hey, yeah, I'll give you half a gram of biomimetic gel for 500 kilos of ore. I only point that out because one of the things that's a constant in both TNG and DS9 is that biomimetic gel is incredibly valuable and hard to produce. So if you ever, like, for example, had a ship with, like, cratefuls of it that were being traded for a random Dominion Polaron weapon, that'd just be insane. So, naturally, uh, Riker, the guy takes the deal immediately. He just says, done! 
which shows how much value is in the biomimetic gel. Then Riker uses it to reveal the Klingon bird and then take it. I'm surprised they didn't try to flee. I mean, I know they had a cloak and all, but come on. Anyways, so they're revealed, and they sh they come on board, and he's like, so what's this? Oh, it's just something to tarnish our good day. That's the symbol of our son. She just found out she's pregnant a few days ago. Holy crap. Uh, so then we get into the time travel. This is when the episode completely falls apart. Even though the core idea is kind of cool, and as I've said, they've done some good foreshadowing with Kim Tart, and James Sloyan is amazing. The problem is this falls apart the more you think about it, and the more you, it kind of like a tale actually. The story of the Klingon who went back in time to save his father from himself, but then he failed, and... No, don't think about it. Stop thinking about it! Well, unfortunately, it is my job to think about it, but even if it wasn't, I already do, because that's me. First problem. He just casually goes back in time. They just brush over that. No, yeah, I found a guy. He sent me back in time. No biggie, really. It's, it's, it was a Tuesday, you know. It's, it's, it's 40 years from now. Come on, everyone can time travel. I suppose having played Star Trek Online, I could agree with that assessment. How many times do we time travel in STO? But seriously, though, they just brush over that. And then we find out that his big plan is to come back, stage an assassination attempt, which will scare his younger self into doing this stuff and blah, blah, blah. And they all talk about as if this is type 2 time travel, a.k.a. one timeline that is malleable. The problem here is that... They talk about it like that, but they don't acknowledge the fact that the time timeline has already been drastically altered by the mere inclusion of himself. Worf doesn't even bring this up. He says, no, things have already changed because I'm different. It's not the fact that you're here and we, we just went after the, the, the Dura sisters and God knows what else has changed. Actually, so I mentioned the time travel thing. As we know, in this particular time, um, this dagger will probably never exist because whatever child she would have had probably never actually gets born because she's probably still pregnant when Generations happens, which, remember, is not far from the end of Season 7. She just found out two days ago she's pregnant in this episode. They've got about, what is it, four episodes left? Hang on, where are we at? Where are we at? Um, where's, the, where's the thing? It's not telling me. Hang on, so we got Bloodlines. Hang on, Bloodlines. We've got Emergence, Preemptive Strike, and so four. Four episodes from the end, which then goes immediately into Generations. So, maybe a month or two? Which means she's still pregnant in Generations when she's killed on her Bird of Prey trying to destroy the Enterprise D. <laughs> now, the... I just want to comment on something. See, what happens is, you know, they, they share these details, and then what happens is there's, there's a scene transition, and then Worf is talking to his son, his younger son, and Kim Tar is just gone, and they don't explain where he goes or how he goes or if he travels back or anything whatsoever. He's just out of the story. Don't think about it. Don't think about it. So we know, I mean, if we're to actually consider continuity in canon, we know that there are time cops that there are people who sit around monitoring the timeways and trying to make sure that things go relatively the right way. And um, I can't help but note that this sequence of events directly leads to an alteration in Lursa and Bator's story, which leads to them dying basically a few months from now. And 
And in the timeline that is posited by future Alexander, obviously the Duras, the Duras house is still a house of some power or repute, which is not true in this timeline because of the aforementioned death, but also as we see, uh, what's-his-face, there, there are other... The, the son of Duras is a pathetic nobody over in Deep Space Nine. So we've just kind of terminated the Duras power power base in the Klingon Empire. I, I, I know I'm reaching a little bit here, but you see how these pieces connect so interestingly when you think about it? It's a shame it wasn't done on purpose. I like theory crafting, but I really wish this stuff was actually in the frickin' show. But yeah, and then, then he just he just goes back. The end. I accept that you have your own path, Alexander. At until Deep Space Nine, when when you join the military under Martok. Ugh. Whatever. I got nothing else. I hope you've enjoyed this tale, and I'll see you guys next time for another character's son. They really like to hammer that point in season seven, don't they? See you next time, guys.